The Freeze Lecturers continue on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, excuse me, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And in that much better voice, I'm Don Wooten. (laughs) Dr. Lauren Hammond will speak clearly though today on the 1619 Project on Scribble. It's the weather. (laughs) Who knows? <laughs> has to be the well. You know, <clears throat> this is one of those things, Lauren. We turn on the recorder and we go for thirty <laughs> minutes, and whatever happens, happens. Okay, okay, I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, of course, you say something that gets us barred by the FCC. Oh, no. <laughs> then we'll start over. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you picked a. Uh, did you pick this book, by the way? I didn't. Oh, I didn't. No. Um, It was actually a request uh, for me to speak on the book. And I got it um, probably about this time last year. Uh, Kai Swanson asked me if I would be interested in participating in the series and if I would in particular be interested in doing the 1619 Project. And I was really excited and jumped at the chance to say yes and participate in the series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then you had to read the book. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and all the commentary. There was a lot of commentary. Yeah, so read the book, read a lot of the different feedback, listened to some of the podcast. Um, but a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And despite some of the controversy that it has been embroiled in, I definitely think that it's a book that changed, or maybe we might say is changing, it's changing. history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the uh, as a Southerner, I know the face of that racism up close. And it has been a, a, an agony to me all my life, not only to see what it was then, but to be aware of what it was like in the beginning and what a horrendous, horrendous institution slavery was in this country, mm-hmm. how unendingly brutal. And uh, then the attempt of the South to keep it going even after they had lost the Civil War, at least in terms of opportunity and education and so on. Indeed. So to go back and to examine the whole thing from 1619 forward, I think is one of the most useful things that's been done. Mm-hmm. But oh my. <laughs> well, when you spoke at the Freeze Lecture, how did you focus? How did, what did you decide um, as a starting point for something that big? Well, one of the things that I really kind of wanted to start with because the book has had so much controversy is hearing, one, whether or not people had actually read or listened to the project. And so kind of had an educated sense right from their own uh, engagement with the text. Uh, Then the other thing I was interested in seeing was what people heard, positive maybe we might say in the middle, right? Positive critique, positive construction. Um, And then all the way to kind of the negative end of the the spectrum. So that's what I started with. And we talked a little bit about the text author. 
uh, the origins of the project, the goal and the the central thrust, Mm -hmm. uh, the argument that they essentially make is that slavery and its legacy have really profoundly shaped uh, modern American life. And despite that being true, in many ways that has been hidden from the wider American public. Um, So we talked about that, and then we went on to talk about the reception of the text, and then maybe some of the ways in which the book has changed history, and then we just kind of did a fun question and answer session. Oh, good. Yeah, it was really enjoyable. uh, How did this book come to be? Uh, the, uh, The 1619 Project. I heard it was a project of the New York Times. Is that mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that is true. So uh, when you read the introduction to the text, she talks about when she was in high school, she took a class called the African American Experience and came across that date, uh, 1619, in terms of it being uh, kind of the inauguration of the African American presence in the United States. And think that she really carried that with her. Uh, It's something that was seminal. And so she goes to school for journalism, launches her journalism career. But as we approached 2019, right, the 400-year commemoration, her thought was, hmm, I wonder what people might do, right? Will people even recognize this as an important date in the American narrative? Mm -hmm. Um, And... wagering that probably not (laughs) she approached the new york times with the idea of pitching the 1619 project really to get the united states to think much more critically about its history and the role of african americans in it Mm -hmm. and the rest as they say is history history, yes (laughs) history is still unfolding i mean it's only Mm -hmm. been a few years really Mm -hmm. so it's still it's still new Uh, who is the author uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the editor and maybe we might say co-creator, but there are a number of other journalists, activists, scholars who have contributed individual pieces, both to the original form, right, kind of that, I believe it was nine part kind of like essays mm-hmm. uh, that I think are still available on the New York Times website, and then also now a long form book, which has been much expanded, at least 13 or 14 chapters now. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it still keeps growing, huh? Yeah. Yes, indeed it does. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. What about the book do you think is most valuable to a person who goes into this with no awareness of what's at stake? Well, I think probably just that, the increased awareness yeah. of the African-American story So depending upon where we are in U.S. history, African-Americans have been anywhere between roughly 25% to about 15% of the population. And I think it's pretty troubling that most people know very little about African-American history. It's often sidelined in K-12 education. Mm -hmm. Um, The best chance most folks will get it is if they choose to take a course once they get to college. Um, But by and large, K-12 history of African-Americans is slavery, which is very bad, right? Which, of course, it was. (laughs) Uh, There was a mention of Frederick Douglass, maybe. Uh, Then there's an acknowledgement, normally brief, of Jim Crow. And then we move to Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And that's kind of the Black American story. And so this really gives us a much better understanding of the detail, but also, again, going back to the idea that 
slavery and its legacy have been central in creating the United States, Mm -hmm. which I think for many was a controversial and very troubling idea. Yeah, that's true, because uh, most people don't know, and they're not aware of the depth of racism (laughs) that uh, flows through the whole country. And when I came up from the South, I thought, well, I'll I'll be rid of this now. I'm going up North. And I found, no, it's just a different flavor up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. And it's actually people aren't aware of it. They aren't aware that they're acting on a racist basis on some things. Yeah, it gets sneakier in some ways. I was thinking about um, the Obama presidency and how how quick um, a lot of our population wanted to say, well, look, see, um, things aren't that bad anymore. We've elected a black man for a president. And to convince people now that the problem is still as large as it is, is I, I don't know what word to use. It just seems trickier or yeah, sneakier I, somehow. I know when I voted for Obama, I thought I'm helping kick off a wave of, a wave of racism in this country. Because people Mm -hmm. down south, and many up north, will suddenly think there's a black man, but not only that, but a black woman is the first lady. There are black children in the Mm -hmm. White House. And sure enough, the number of hate groups doubled in that first year. Yeah. I was, it wasn't, it was not unexpected, but it was sad to see. Yeah. Yeah, I think for many people, the Obama presidency was what they thought was the beginning of a post-racial American dream. Um, But I think that we could even see over the course of the campaign, right, in terms of people questioning his citizenship, that we we weren't at that moment. So for me, it was interesting in the aftermath of his election to hear rhetoric about us being in a post-racial America because I was like, no, we aren't. Yeah. No. 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 Well, you think about it, and we've got. I, I think about women getting the right to vote, and suddenly, you know, okay, that's balanced. What are women complaining about? You know, and there you are saying, we don't make as much as you know the other part of the population. And yeah, well, the, I'm here under a false flag. I bought the book. I haven't read it. Mm. So it's, <laughs> it's it's like many books that I should read that just pile up. How closely do they do you find the brutality of the slave system depicted in the book? So I do think she does a good job of depicting it, but one of the critiques that's been mentioned by other historians is that perhaps her description is something that's more akin to what was actually happening post revolution. Uh, So maybe Mm. that it kind of more her description maybe mirrored a bit more the antebellum period in the lead up of the Civil War. Um, And so, you know, I would agree with maybe in the particulars that that's true. Uh, But by and large, slavery in any place and any time is not a great, (laughs) you know, nobody ever wants to, that's, that's one of the, you know, when I I sometimes talk to other groups or students, I was like, you know, nobody ever wants to be in that position. Mm -hmm. And so that there tells you something, something about the, the nature of it. So yeah, Yeah. I think regardless of the time period, slavery is a horrible institution that nobody wants to be forced into. Yeah. But uh, there are some stories of what happened at that time. And even afterwards, I was appalled as a young man to 
realize that horrible things were going on in Mississippi. Uh, you could run over a black man <laughs> on a country road and nothing would ever happen. Nothing would ever be said. Yeah. Uh, the brutality was breathtaking. And the lynchings, lynchings continued up until, I think, in the 1980-something. Yeah, it's... And I, I've often wondered, how can a people be so gentle and tender and brutal at the same time? It just didn't make sense to me. You mean humanity in, I mean, in general? White Southerners. Yeah. They're the nicest, oh, I see. They're the nicest people you can meet. <laughs> but... I tell you, uh, the brutality in the place is just staggering. Yeah. Well, I think that's maybe one of the, the challenges folks had with the text is that most people have no familiarity with the levels of brutality, not only of slavery, right, but Jim yeah. Crow. Yeah. And so if you don't have a sense of that brutality, it becomes very easy to be dismissive yeah. of not only this text, right, but the African-American experience in general. Sure. Dismissive and defensive, mm -hmm. you know, certainly for a white population who don't want to hear. Is there that... a part of this book you'd like to read to give us an example of what's in there? Hmm. Let's see. Well, it's a really interesting text in many different ways, right, because... Uh, not only do we have uh, the chapters, right, the kind of more scholarly essays, but they're also, it's almost like a timeline mm -hmm. with bits of information about important historical events, uh, poetry, yeah. uh, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> photography. And so let me see if maybe I might... Read one of those little excerpts. Yeah. Let's see if I was thinking, I saw a list of the poets that were involved in the project since I teach poetry, and it was just illustrious. You know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's great, that it yeah. becomes a collage kind of. All righty. Hmm. Let's see. Let's maybe read uh, 1682. And so this is interesting for me because I'm also a Southerner. I'm from Virginia mm -hmm. <laughs> originally. And so 1682 actually talks about uh, interracial marriage in Virginia. Okay. So Virginia's House of Burgesses makes interracial marriage punishable by imprisonment. Over the next decade, Virginia and other colonies continue to pass laws restricting or prohibiting marriage between white and black people. No such laws exist in England at that time. <laughs> They are unique to the North American colonies and help create a racial caste system that strictly forbids interracial relationships of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, down around uh, New Orleans. Things are a little bit more relaxed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you did have those relationships. But it was relatively late that uh, New Orleans turned hard, hard racist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember... Louis Armstrong was always happy to go to New Orleans because it was easy and free, but he went back there once uh, in later years, and he swore he'd never go there again because of the way things mm -hmm. have changed. So it ebbs and flows, and uh, <clears throat> it depends on so many different things. But the thing, the aspect of slavery in this country is that there had been slaves before, 
Uh, people were captured and made slaves, mm -hmm. all kinds. Britons were made slaves in Rome and so on. Generally, you had a way to work out of that. But in this country, it became associated with blacks. And that association, that stamp, uh, had a disfiguring effect on history. And so the two, skin color and slavery, became intertwined, mm. which, you know, had not been so before. So who was punished? Were they punished equally um, in interracial marriages? Or... Yeah, so it's really interesting. It, it often depended. And so one thing maybe to keep in mind is that while interracial marriage may have been outlawed, that didn't mean that interracial unions were not still yep. taking place uh, and occurred across the spectrum. Yeah. You know, some definitely much more coercive, akin to rape and sexual assault. Yeah. Uh, some where, you know, maybe there may have been elements of positive feeling, but yeah. because there often was still a issue of power dynamics, yep. right? It was never entirely free. Yeah. Um, so I think that's always one thing that's important to kind of keep in mind when it comes to, to interracial marriages. But the other thing maybe to think about is when we were thinking about interracial unions, that's really what kept slavery, particularly in the United States, going. Sure. Right? So here we've looked at the 1682 decision. In 16, I believe 1664, there's another decision from the Virginia House of Burgesses, which makes slavery inheritable through uh. the mother, right? And so this is how slavery uh, managed to, to perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. And we have this very odd situation where we get men who are essentially father owners, where they oh, both man. have fathered and also own their own children. Yeah. And unlike in other places, right, there was not kind of a custom of frequently freeing those children, which is yeah. not super common, but more common in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so one of the things that I might argue is that this is kind of where we see the birth of two different Americas, right? One black, one white, and at the behest of owners, right, yeah. who had ties to people who were part of the Virginia House of Burgesses, and this is the decision that they made. And I think it's so interesting because oftentimes folks who critique the 1619 Project, they're like, well, anything before 1776 is not really about the United States, yeah. right? That's about yeah. England. But as we've seen, the laws that were passed in the Virginia House of Burgess and the equivalent in North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, those laws and decisions didn't come from England. And yeah, didn't apply exactly. in England. So already we can see that people living in the United States are <clears throat> creating their own unique system. Yep. Yeah. What, uh, what about the Reconstruction era? That was a brief, tumultuous time when all of a sudden uh, former slaves could vote. They were voted into office, into Congress, uh, various positions of power, and through a really shabby deal, that was made, the Republican Party, which had been really behind uh, the North and the Civil War, agreed that we would just let it all go if you, if your electors would uh, choose our candidate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that, that ugly bargain sealed the fate of the South. 
from that time on. Indeed it did. It was a compromise of, was it 1877? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't a compromise. It was a cave-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what the textbooks refer to it as, <laughs> the compromise mm-hmm. of 1877. Yeah. But essentially, they abandoned African-Americans to the South as it was entering into the phase of Southern redemption, yeah. right? Attempting to redeem and in many ways roll back uh, mm-hmm. all the gains that African-Americans had made. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a history. Reading it all, do you find it depressing? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard uh, to do this kind of scholarship, to read this kind of scholarship. Um, you know, even when I did the, the freeze lectures, it was interesting to hear some of the audience members say that they actually could not finish the book uh-huh. because they found themselves so emotional and distraught over the text. And so it's very beautifully written, um, but there are very, there are hard moments, very hard moments. Yeah, it's, uh, it is sometimes hard to read things like that, but uh, I've been through a lot of that in my lifetime, reading about the South. And uh, it was tough. It was, I, I still am aghast at the brutality that was, common mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. i've cited before the instance where you'd bring three slaves in with bags of cotton weigh them and the one with the lightest bag was whipped it didn't make any difference how much <clears throat> there was and every day that would be done mm-hmm. and i think that is inhuman mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was a matter of course yeah and uh, then there were rebellions and they were bloody things that were put down with extraordinary violence. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a history that one can be proud of in the sense, you know, the country is going forward and improving and so on. But uh, it is important to know it. Mm-hmm. And people really don't want kids to know it. Yeah. Well, we, I mean... We don't want to talk very much about our indigenous population either, because oh, no. what does that say about us? Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really teach that very well either. And thinking about, um, as you're talking about slave owners, and we still have such a kind of human trafficking, and you know that goes on still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you think, yeah, we don't want to look at the underbelly of how things work. Indeed, indeed. And it is in part, as you're saying, because it's so painful, but nothing, that's what, that will lead to change. If you are so appalled by something um, and so enraged and hurt, um, that's where change, I think, has what its was your best audience, chance. What was your audience's reaction to the uh, questions and answers and so on? At the freeze yeah. lecture. Oh, we had a wonderful discussion, um, uh, particularly around some of the critiques of mm-hmm. the text. Um, as we said, kind of positive, those that were actually constructive and much more about the nature of historical inquiry, all the way to those who basically argued that the text was an attempt to brainwash Americans. And then, you know, talking about education, this idea of now everybody's trying to put CRT or critical race theory into the classroom. So did you have much of that in the audience? 
Uh, no, most people uh, appreciated the text Good. and thought that if maybe not this text in particular, right, that at least the impetus, right, and information yeah. should be taught. Now, of course, there's questions about age appropriate and yeah. method, right, but the ideology of just, or the idea rather, just leaving much of this out uh, was deeply disturbing to most of the audience members. Good. Yes. Well, you know, it's, but I think people would still prefer that this book just go away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They would like to overlook this Mm -hmm. and think, well, let's just start fresh. You know, we'll we'll just forget that. It was what it was, and now it's all different. Yeah, and now it isn't all different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the specters of slavery and Jim Crow. Still haunt. Oh, yeah. They will not go away until we have a real discussion and then reckoning and redress. And yeah. it's interesting, you know, oftentimes people are like, well, you know, slavery was so long ago. And, you know, even if you even if people conceded that, which I wouldn't, uh, there's still Jim Crow. Yeah. Right. And uh, one of the things I mentioned during the free series is that my husband's side of the family is from. Mississippi, right? And so mm-hmm. left for opportunity because of Jim Crow. And so yeah. that's my father-in-law. And so there's still plenty of people sure. who experienced Jim Crow yeah. um, that we should think about. And Mississippi's a hard case. Mm-hmm. It, uh, mm-hmm. I used to spend my summers there when I was a kid. Uh-huh. It was interesting. There was a railroad line right down the middle, and the black stores were on one side, and the white stores were on the other. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, you didn't cross that line. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, living it is one thing. And it amazed me that I could, my classmates could live this and not see it. Not see it as anything extraordinary or out yeah. of the way. That this, this is normal life. Yeah. But that's quite a slog. I mean, if people pick up that book, they think, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what are, what are yeah. We, Did uh, you have audience members who had read it? Yeah. Could you tell or were you kind of saying this is this is out there? No, some, some people had read at least portions of it, right? Okay. Because it is it's a dense text. Yeah. Um, other people had read the podcast. Okay. Uh, and Augustana actually was sponsoring a a kind of a book club mm-hmm. for reading and then discussing the text. Okay. So I think that there have been some good efforts. Even other folks mentioned efforts in the community, churches, et cetera, reading through the text. And so it, it's challenging to get through, but definitely worth it. Yeah. Uh, are, there, are there some parts you would recommend ahead of others? That, hmm. uh, you know, if a person looks at it and thinks, I don't think I can do this, would you direct them to one place in particular? Yes. So I think I would probably direct people to democracy, which is the first chapter, and capitalism, which is chapter six. Uh, And the reason that I would maybe point to those two is because I think they do an excellent job of showing how race 
and slavery and Jim Crow have been central to both the American political system, but also the economic system. And so even the example you gave, right, of three enslaved workers, whoever had picked the least amount of cotton being punished, that's showing the ways in which slave labor fueled capitalism in the American economy. Yep. Yeah, okay, well, we'll keep keep those two recommendations in mind, (laughs) the chapters on democracy Mm -hmm. and the chapters on capitalism. Mm -hmm. Well, I must say, uh, that was quite a slog to undertake, and uh, I'm glad you accepted the challenge. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I am as well. (laughs) Dr. Lauren Hammond has been our guest today. She was the second of the Freeze Lecturers, and her topic was the 1619 Project, which you are free to read. And that'll do it for now. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you'll be back next week for the next edition of Scribble.